Chapter twenty eight of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter twenty eight. Harassed and comfortless, Ellis passed the remainder of the day in painful recollections and apprehensive forebodings, though utterly unable, either by retrospection to avoid, or by anticipation to prepare for the evils that she might have to encounter. The next morning Miss Arb came to her usual appointment. Though glad, in a situation so embarrassed, to see the only person whom she could look upon as a guide, her opinion of Miss Arb, already lowered during that lady's last visit, had been so completely sunk from her joining in the cry raised at the church, that she received her with undisguised coldness, and an open remonstrance against the cruel injustice of ascribing to choice circumstances the most accidental, and a position as unavoidable as it had been irksome and improper. Miss Arb, who came into the room with a gravely authoritative air, denoting that she expected not simply a welcome, but the humblest gratitude, for the condescension of her visit, was astonished by the courage, and disconcerted by the truth, of this exhortation. She was by no means ignorant how unpleasantly Ellis might have been struck by her behaviour at the church, but she thought her in a condition too forlorn to feel, much less to express, any resentment and she meant, by entering the chamber with an wholly uncustomary importance, to awe her from hazarding any complaint. But the modesty of Ellis was a mixture of dignity with humility. If she thought herself oppressed or insulted, the former predominated. If she experienced consideration and kindness, she was all meek gratitude in return. But when, by the steadiness of her representation, Miss Arb found her own mistake, and saw what firmness could exist with indigence, what spirit could break through difficulty, she disguised her surprise, and changed, with alertness, the whole of her manner. She protested that some other voice must have been taken for hers, declared that she had always thought nobody so charming as Miss Ellis, rallied against the abominable world for its prejudices, warmly renewed her professions of regard, and then rang the bell, to order her footman to bring up a little parcel of music from her coach, which she was sure would delight them both to try together. Ellis suffered the music to be fetched, but, before she would play it, entreated Miss Arb to spare a few minutes to discourse upon her affairs. "'What, madam, am I to do now? Tis to your influence and exertions I am indebted for the attempt which I have made, to procure that self-dependence which I so earnestly covet. I shall always be most ready to acknowledge this obligation, but permit me to solicit your directions, and, I hope, your aid, how I may try to allay the storm which accident has so cruelly raised around me, but which misconception alone can make dangerous or durable.' "'Very true, my dear Ellis, if everybody judged you as justly as I do. But when people have enemies—' "'Enemies?' repeated Ellis, amazed. "'Surely, madam, you are not serious. Enemies! Can I possibly have any enemies? 
that, in a situation so little known, and so unlikely to be understood, I may have failed to create friends, I can easily indeed conceive. But, offending no one, distressed yet not importune, and seeking to obviate my difficulties by my exertions, to supply my necessities by my labours, surely I cannot have been so strangely, so unaccountably unfortunate, as to have made myself any enemies.' "'Why, you know, my dear Miss Ellis, how I blamed you from the first for that nonsense of telling Miss Brinville that she had no ear for music. What could it signify whether she had or not? She only wanted to learn that she might say she learnt, and you had no business to teach but that you might be paid for teaching.' "'And is it possible, madam, that I can have made her really my enemy, merely by forbearing to take what I thought would be a dishonourable advantage of her ignorance of that defect?' Nay, she has certainly no great reason to be thankful, for she would never have found it out, and I am sure nobody else would ever have told it her. She is firmly persuaded that you only wanted to give Sir Lyle Sycamore an ill opinion of her accomplishments, for she declares that she has seen you unceasingly pursuing him, with all the wiles imaginable. One time she surprised you sitting entirely aloof at the Welshman's benefit, till he joined you. Another time she caught you waiting for him in the aisle of the church, and in short— "'Miss Arb!' cried Ellis, interrupting her, with undisguised resentment. "'If Miss Brinville can be amused by inventing, as well as propagating, premeditated motives for accidental occurrences, you must permit me to decline being the auditress if I cannot escape being the object of such fictitious censure.' "'Miss Arb,' somewhat ashamed— repeated her assurances of personal good opinion and then with many pompous professions of regard and concern owed that there had been a discussion at lady kendover's after church time on sunday which had concluded by a final decision of her ladyship's that it was utterly impossible to admit a young woman so obscurely involved in strange circumstances and so ready to fall into low company to so confidential a kind of intercourse as that of giving instructions to young persons of fashion. Everybody else, of course, would abide by her ladyship's decision. And therefore, my dear Ellis, she continued, I am excessively sorry, but our plan is quite overset. I am excessively sorry, I assure you, but what can be done? However, I have not above three minutes to stay, so do let us try this sweet adagio. I want vastly to conquer the horrid long bars of that eternal cadenza. Ellis, for a few moments, stood almost stupefied with amazement at so selfish a proposition, at the very instant of announcing so ruinous a sentence. But disdain soon supplied her with philosophy, and scorning to make an appeal for a consideration so unfeelingly withheld, she calmly went to her harp. When Miss Arb, however, rose to be gone, she begged some advice relative both to the debts which she had contracted, and those which she was entitled to claim. But Miss Arb, looking at her watch, and hurrying on her gloves, declared that she had not a second to lose. "'I shall see you, however,' she cried, in quitting the chamber, "'as often as possible. I can find a thousand pretenses for coming to Miss Matson's, without anybody's knowing why, so we can still have our delightful little musical meetings.' The contempt inspired by this worldly patroness so intent upon her own advantage, so insensible to the distress of the person whom she affected to protect, 
occupied the mind of Ellis only while she was present. The door was no sooner shut, than she felt wholly engrossed by her own situation, and her disappointment at large. "'This scheme, then,' she cried, "'is already at an end. This plan for self-dependence is already abortive, and I have not my disappointment only to bear. It is accompanied with disgrace, and exposes me to indignity.' Deeply hurt, and strongly affected, how insufficient, she exclaimed, is a female to herself! How utterly dependent upon situation, connections, circumstance! How nameless, how forever fresh springing are her difficulties, when she would owe her existence to her own exertions! Her conduct is criticised, not scrutinised. Her character is censured, not examined. Her labours are unhonoured, and her qualifications are but lures to ill-will. Calumny hovers over her head, and slander follows her footsteps. Here she checked herself. Candour, the reigning feature of her mind, repressed her murmurs. "'Involved as I am in darkness and obscurity,' she cried, "'ought I to expect milder judgment? "'No, I have no right to complain. "'Appearances are against me, "'and to appearances are we not all either victims or dupes?' "'She now turned her thoughts to what measures she must next pursue, "'but felt no chance of equally satisfying herself in any other attempt. "'Music was her favourite study.' and in the practice of that elegant, grateful, soul-soothing art, she found a softening to her cares, that momentarily, at least, lulled them to something like forgetfulness. And though this was a charm that could by no means extend to the dull and dry labour of teaching, it was a profession so preferable to all others, in her taste, that she bore patiently and cheerfully the minute mechanical and ear-wearing toil of giving lessons to the unapt the stupid the idle and the wilful for such unhappily are the epithets most ordinarily due to beginners in all sciences and studies the necessity however of adopting some plan that should both be speedy and vigorous was soon alarmingly enforced by a visit from miss matson who civilly but with evidently altered manners told her that she had a little account to settle with some tradesmen and that she should take it as a favour if her own account could be settled for her lodgings there are few attacks to which we are liable that give a greater shock to upright and unhackneyed minds than a pecuniary demand which they know to be just yet cannot satisfy pride and shame assault them at once they are offended by a summons that seems to imply a doubt of their integrity, while they blush at appearing to have incurred it, by not having more scrupulously balanced their means with their expenses. She suffered, therefore, the most sensible mortification, from her inability to discharge, without delay, a debt contracted with a stranger, upon whose generosity she had no claim, upon whose forbearance she had no tie. Far from having this power, she had other bills to expect which she as little could answer. The twenty pounds of Lady Aurora were already nearly gone, in articles which did not admit of trust, and in the current necessaries which her situation indispensably and daily required. She feared that all the money which was due to her would be insufficient to pay what she owed, or at least would be wholly employed in that act of justice 
which would leave her, therefore, in the same utter indigence as when she began her late attempt. Her look of consternation served but to stimulate the demands of Miss Matson, which were now accompanied with allusions to the conversation that had been held in the shop, between Miss Bidle and Mr. Riley, relative to her poverty and disguise, that were designedly offensive. Ellis, with an air grave and commanding, desired to be left alone, calmly saying that Miss Matson should very speedily be satisfied. The impulse of her wishes was to have recourse to the deposit of Harleigh, that her answer to this affront might be an immediate change of lodging, as well as payment. But this was a thought that scarcely outlived the moment of its formation. "'Alas!' she cried, "'he who alone could serve me, whose generosity and benevolence would delight in aiding me, has put it out of my power to accept his smallest assistance.' Had my friendship contented him, how essentially might I have been indebted to his good offices!" She was here broken in upon by one of the young apprentices, who, with many apologies, brought, from the several tradespeople, all the little bills which had been incurred through the directions of Miss Arb. However severely she was shocked, she could not be surprised. She wrote immediately to communicate these demands to Miss Arb, stating her distress, and entreating that her late scholars might be urged to settle their accounts with the utmost expedition. She felt her right to make this application to Miss Arb, whose advice, or rather insistence, had impelled her into the measures which produced her present difficulties. Her request, therefore, though urged with deference and respect, had a tone which she was sure could not justly be disputed. She wished earnestly to address a few words to Lady Kendover, of such a nature as might speak in her favour to her scholars at large. But so many obstacles were in the way, to her giving any satisfactory explanation, that she was obliged to be contented with silent acquiescence. Miss Arb sent word that she was engaged, and could not write. The rest of the day was passed in great anxiety, but when the following also wore away, without producing any reply, she wrote again, proposing, if Miss Arb had not time to attend to her request, to submit it to Miss Bidle. In about half an hour after she had sent the second note, Mr. Giles Arb desired to be admitted, that he might deliver to her a message from his cousin. She recollected having heard, from Selina, that he was a very absent but worthy old man, and that he had the very best temper of any person breathing. She did not hesitate, therefore, to receive him, and his appearance announced, at once, the latter quality, by a smile the most inartificial, which was evidently the emanation of a kind heart, opening to immediate good will at sight of a fellow-creature. It seemed the visible index of a good and innocent mind, and his manners had the most singular simplicity. His cousin, he said, had desired him to acquaint her that she could not call because she was particularly engaged, and could not write because she was particularly hurried. And whenever I have a commission from my cousin, he continued, I always think it best to deliver it in her own words, for two or three reasons one of which is that my own might not be half as good, 
for she is the most accomplished young lady living, I am told, and my other reasons you'll do me a favour by not asking me to mention. I may at least infer, then, sir, that when less hurried and less engaged Miss Arb means to have the goodness to come, or to write to me? I don't doubt it. Those ladies that she don't like should see her with you, can hardly keep watching her all day long. What ladies, sir? Oh, I must not mention names, returned he, smiling. My cousin charged me not. My fair cousin likes very well to be obeyed. But maybe so do you, too, for they tell me it's not an uncommon thing among ladies. And if that's the case, I shall find myself in a dilemma— for my cousin has the best right, and yet what have you done to me that I should deny you what you ask me? Then looking earnestly, but with an air so innocent that it was impossible to give offence, in her face, he added, My cousin has often told me a great many things about you, yet she never mentioned your being so pretty, but maybe she thought I might find it out. Ellis inquired whether he were acquainted with the nature of her application to Miss Arb. He nodded an assent, but checking himself from confirming it, cried, "'My cousin bid me say nothing, for she will have it that I always mention things that should not be told, and that makes me very careful, so I hope you won't be angry if you find me rather upon my guard.' Ellis disclaimed all inquisitive designs beyond desiring to know whether miss arb meant that she should discuss her situation with him and receive his counsel how she should proceed my cousin never asks my counsel he answered she knows everything best herself she's very clever they tell me she often recounts to me how she surprises people so does her papa i believe they think i should not discover it else and i don't know but they are in the right for i am a very indifferent judge but I can't make out, with that gentle air of yours, and so pretty a face, how you can have made those ladies take such a dislike to you. A dislike, sir? Yes, Lady Aramede talks of you with prodigious contempt, and— Ellis, colouring at this word, hung back, evidently declining to hear another, but Mr. Giles, not remarking this, went on. And Miss Brinville can't endure you neither— it's a curious thing to see what an angry look comes over her features when she talks of you. Do you know the reason? I flatter myself it is not to be known, sir. Certainly I am innocent of any design of offending her. Why, then, perhaps she does not know what she has taken amiss herself, poor lady. She is only affronted and can't tell why. It will happen so sometimes to those pretty ladies, when they begin going a little downhill. And they can't help it. They don't know what to make of it themselves, poor things. But we can see how it is better we lookers on. He then seated himself upon an armchair, and leaning back at his ease, continued talking, but without looking at Ellis or seeming to address her. I always pity them the moment I see them, those pretty creatures, even when they are in their prime. I always think what they have got to go through— after seeing everybody admire them, to see nobody look at them, and when they cast their eyes on a glass, to find themselves every day changing, and always for the worse. It is but hard upon them, I really think, when they have done nothing to deserve it. It is but a short time ago that Miss Brinville was almost as pretty as this young harp-player here. "'Sir!' cried Ellis, surprised. "'Ma'am?' cried he, starting and looking round and then, smiling at himself, adding, 
I protest I did not think of your being so near me. I had forgot that. But I hope you won't take it ill. By no means, she answered, and asked whether she might write a few lines by him to Miss Arb. He willingly consented. She then drew up an animated representation, to that lady, of the irksome situation into which she was cast, from the evident distrust manifested by Miss Matson, and the suspicious speed with which the other bills had been delivered. She meant to send her small accounts immediately to all her scholars, and entreated Miss Arb to use her interest in hastening their discharge. When she raised her head to give this, with an apology, to Mr. Giles, she saw him unfolding some small papers, which he began very earnestly to examine. Not to interrupt him, she took up some needlework, but, upon looking, soon after, at the chimney-piece, she missed the packet which she had placed there, of her bills, and then, with the utmost surprise, perceived that it was in his hands. She waited a few instants, in expectation that he would either put it down, or make some excuse for his curiosity, but he seemed to think of nothing less. He sorted and counted the bills, and began casting them up. "'Have you then the goodness, sir,' said Ellis, "'to prepare yourself for acquainting Miss Arb with the state of my affairs?' He started again at this question, and looked a little scared, but after a minute's perplexity he suddenly arose, and hastily refolding and placing them upon the chimney-piece, said, with a good deal of confusion, I beg your pardon a thousand times. I don't well know how this happened, but the chimney-piece looks so like my own, and the fire was so comfortable, that I suppose I thought I was at home, and took that parcel for one that the servant had put there for me. And I was wondering to myself, when I had ordered all those linens and muslins and the like, I could not recollect one article of them. He then, after again begging her pardon, took leave. While Ellis was ruminating whether this strange conduct were the effect of absence, oddity, or curiosity, he abruptly returned, and said, "'I protest I was going without my errand at last. Did you bid me tell my cousin that all those bills were paid?' "'All paid? Alas, no, not one of them.' "'And why not? You should always pay your bills, my dear.' Ellis looked at him in much perplexity to see whether this were uttered as a sneer, or as a remonstrance, but soon perceived, by the earnestness of his countenance, that it was the latter, and then, with a sigh, answered, "'You are undoubtedly right, sir. I am the first to condemn all that appears against me, but I made my late attempt with the persuasion that I was as secure of repaying others as of serving myself. I would not else have run any risk where I should not have been the sole sufferer.' "'But what?' said he, staring and shutting the door, and not seeming to comprehend her. "'What is the reason that you can't pay your bills?' "'A very simple reason, sir. I have not the power.' "'Not the power? What are you very poor, then?' Ellis could not forbear smiling, but seeing him put his hand in his pocket, hastened to answer, "'Yes, sir. But very proud, too.' I am sometimes, therefore, involved in the double distress of being obliged to refuse the very assistance I require. But you would not refuse mine? Without a moment's hesitation. Would you indeed? And from what motive? Again Ellis could scarcely keep her countenance at a question so unexpected, while she answered, From the custom, sir, of the world, I have been brought up to avoid all obligations with strangers.' 
How so? I don't at all see that. Have you not an obligation to that linen-draper, and hosier, and I don't know who there, upon your chimney-piece, if you take their things, and don't pay for them? Yet more struck with the sense of unbiased equity manifested by this question, than by the simplicity shown by that which had preceded it, Alice felt her face suffused with shame, as she replied, I blush to have incurred such a reprimand, but I hope to convince you, by the exertions which I shall not a moment delay making, how little it is my intention to practice any such injustice, and how wide it would be from my approbation. She sat down, sensibly affected by the necessity of uttering this vindication. "'Well, then,' said he, without observing her distress, won't it be more honest to run in debt with an old bachelor who has nobody but himself to take care of than with a set of poor people who, perhaps, have got their houses full of children? The word honest, and the impossibility of disproving a charge of injuring those by whom she had been served, so powerfully shocked her feelings in arraigning her principles that she could frame no answer. Conceiving her silence to be assent, he returned to the chimney-piece, and, taking the little packet of bills, prepared to put it into his pocket-book, but hastily then, rising, she entreated him to restore it without delay. Her manner was so earnest that he did not dare contest her will, though he looked nearly as angry as he was sorry. "'I meant,' he said, "'to have given you the greatest pleasure in the world. That was what I meant. I thought your debts made you so unhappy that you would love me all your life for getting them off your hands.' I loved a person so myself, who paid for some tops for me, when I was a boy, that I had bought for some of my playmates, without recollecting that I had no money to pay for them. However, I beg your pardon for my blunder, if you like your debts better." He now bowed to her, with an air of concern, and wishing her health and happiness, retreated, but left her door wide open, and she heard him say to the milliners, my dears, I have made a great mistake. I wanted to set that pretty lady's heart at rest by paying her bills, but she says she had rather owe them, though she did not mention her reason. So I hope the poor people are in no great hurry. However, whether they be or not, don't let them torment her for the money, for she says she has none, so twould only be plaguing her for nothing. And I should be sorry for her, for she looks as if she were very smart, besides being so pretty. End of chapter 28 Recording by Roxana Nazari.